Hi, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Apologies for a few minutes delay. We had a little bit of technical difficulties, but we are happy to have with us uh, Tipa Snow, who needs really no introduction. She is um, the caregiver um, expert extraordinaire and who comes on um, being patient periodically. And we're so happy to have us uh, to join us today. Hi, Tipa. Always great to see you. Hey, Deborah. Now it's time to do this. <laughs> Behind the scenes, Deborah was working like crazy. <laughs> so she's all tensed up because, oh, it was frustrating. But yeah. he's being patient. So it's all working. Yeah. Out. It's all in the name and the attitude. <laughs> so, anyway, Tipa, I wanted to start um, because, you know, this time is extraordinarily difficult for all of us, um, caregiver or not, mother, daughter, child, uh, wife, husband. We're all going through such a difficult time um, with COVID, hopefully, seeing the light under um, at the end of the tunnel. But one thing that I hear so frequently from people is that they are falling into a depression and they don't know how to get out of it. And it's a loss of motivation um, primarily. So I'm sure you're hearing the same. Um, give us some coping skills. What should we be doing? Yeah. So we want to sort out, is it truly a depression or is it sort of that thing of, I just... I don't know how to get started, the inability to initiate. And it turns out that when your mood is down and your brain is not firing, it's just not producing the chemicals that we needed to produce in order to be able to do something. And so you're inert. And inertia builds inertia. So Newton's law prevails. So one of the things to think about is the idea of baby bites and the idea of baby steps. So the idea of breaking things down into smaller pieces. So if I, I say, you know, I need to get up and go do something. Well, you've just given yourself a mountain to climb. And instead thinking about, okay, I'm gonna roll over. I'm gonna put my arm over and I am gonna push myself up in this bed. And so it's a step-by-step. Step. And so if I see the person is not really doing much of anything, I might go, mom, hey. Now that requires of me energy, but it turns out by doing that indrawn breath, mom, that interjection, it changes my brain chemistry. And so this tricky part of to get my brain chemistry to change, I focus outward. If I focus inward, there's nothing there to drive me to do anything. So what you're saying, too, is it's it's really a symbiotic relationship, right? I mean, what, someone's got to snap out of it. Otherwise, neither one of you are going to snap out of it. Yeah, because the person who's living with dementia is most frequently really experiencing brain fog that comes from nothing motivating happening. So you get to be the starter. So you're that key in the ignition that turns over and starts it and it's a And so what we want to do is catch it on the first go because we don't want to run the battery down. So if if mom is slow to pick up on that, I've got to be careful that I don't put so much into it that I don't have anything left to give. 
What about though in the earlier stage? Because a lot of the people we're hearing from are, you know, maybe the early onset folks who are very active and, you know, not at home doing nothing. They have very active lives, but not I, anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. Which is what I've heard is this lack of motivation. It's like I really want to be active, but I can't. I'm confined to home, and this world is just really getting me down. And so the idea of expanding your environment, though your environment doesn't change. So really taking your building, your house, your room, your apartment, your space, and redesigning it for when I go over here, I'm going to do this. When I go over here, I'm going to do this. Because if we think about one space and not much happening, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I look around and there's not much going on. And it's like, okay, so this space over here, I'm going to have that be photos. And what I'm going to start doing is putting photos of people that I'd like to talk to. And so I look at a photo over here and I go, okay, I need to either call them or get on Zoom here for a few minutes. And it's going to be a five minute timer. I'm not going to put a lot of time into it because I don't have a lot of energy yet. And so this photos are over here. Now, these are pictures of outdoor scenes that I'd really love to go look at. And so I pick one. I put my finger on one and I'm just going to walk out and walk down and go look at something. Then I'm going to come back. Oh, this is my list for what I get when I go to the store over here. This is. And so I create this bigger environment than it really is. So I'm having to get up and look around and see what's going on. And so suddenly I'm going somewhere. I'm actually not hardly going anywhere, but I'm giving myself permission to see the world in smaller views because the world is smaller right now. I, I actually love that. I mean, that's useful for anyone, whether you have dementia or not, right? It just makes it's it's this need to feel like we are progressing in amidst a pandemic, right? We need to feel like we're we're moving still. We're we're moving forward. Yeah, I mean, because it is it is overwhelming. I mean, when you think, okay, so every time I go to the store, it's risky. Every time I do this, it's risky. And so then we start seeing risk with everything. And it's like, okay, well, let's pick our least risky things and let's engage in those. So we get ourselves back into a coming out, going out in a safe pattern or relatively safe pattern because staying in one space, in one position, we're killing ourselves. I mean, that's the slow death that we're experiencing. Um, and what we're seeing for people who are living with dementia is sometimes that progression picks up of loss of abilities, the inertia, that um, going down to the ground and getting back up. So for instance, instead of just walking over to the sofa, go over, get down all the way on the ground and get back up a couple times. I mean, it's not going to the gym, but it's certainly more than sitting in the chair and not moving. I find just even, I mean, I'm a runner, so I'm outside during the day, but even when I just take a walk, that is so helpful for my mental health, right? Just to get outside and look at the birds flying and just be, you know, yeah. like a... It turns out that the sounds of nature, the experience of nature, the experience of being in a larger space than ourselves is really healing to human beings. And it gets us in a different emotional space. It creates a sense of me versus the world and me in the world. And it allows us for eye travel in spaces and places that we don't usually get to do in a space, in a room. 
What are you What are you hearing from so many people you talk about? And like, give, yeah, give us some insights about what you're hearing from people. Yeah, so people are recognizing that if they don't make extra effort, they are starting to struggle to find more words. It's harder to sustain conversations. It's difficult to follow conversational transitions. Um, they're finding that they read something and they're not holding on to it. Um, they're looking at something and they get sucked into. They are also expressing a lot of, um, all of a sudden I find, oh my gosh, it's been three hours and I'm just scrolling through this stuff. I haven't done anything. And feeling that fluster, frustration of I let myself get sucked in again. Um, and it's being passive. It's this passive participation phenomena versus this back and forth that you and I are doing. So dialogues versus just listening. So it's so interesting you say that because I know with my own mom, we noticed during COVID, she's rapidly losing a lot of conversational skills and words. I mean, drastically. Um, we keep saying like, oh, is it the progression of the disease or is it the the, the state that we're in right now? So um, I recently started uh, speech therapy with her. And mm -hmm. at first I was kind of like, yeah, speech therapy, what good is that gonna do? Like realistically, you know, speech mm -hmm. therapy. But I mean, it's been amazing actually. And for the reason not necessarily, I mean, she does have a little bit of memory recall, which is, is assuring to say, but she feels like she's trying at something and succeeding. And that in itself has like changed her in, in so many different ways during this really difficult time. Yeah, I think we undervalue that back and forth that we do that says to my brain, oh, look, there's another brain out there and I can engage that brain. And when I say, oh, I'm curious about something, just me saying that to you triggers your brain to be curious about something. You don't even know what it is I'm going to bring up, but all of a sudden your brain has that, yeah. And I say, now it's about a recipe. And I'm preparing your brain each step. And so that's a skill that we can develop. And speech therapists have it in spades. I mean, that's what they train for. But those of us who aren't speech therapists can learn the art of leading the conversation. So I engage you. I get the little hook and we move along together. So, oh, so I'm curious about something. That light fixture you have, that one up there behind you, how many light bulbs are on that? It has, I mean, it just, there's a bunch. And what are you finding you would like to do if you were not leading this conversation right now? What would you be tempted to do? What would I be tempted to do if, yeah. How many light bulbs are yeah. in that? You wanna turn around and look and, and start. Look. Yeah. yeah. And so what I just got was a physical movement an eye gaze version. I got you to use your brain because you're starting to do a counting thing. And right. also paying attention to my language. And I'll say, now that is really interesting. So now you've had that for a while. And again, these are not these are not deep conversations. It's rehearsing this back and forth, back and forth. So we recently interviewed um, Dr. Claudia um, um, Kawas from UC Irvine, who's doing the 90 plus study. And actually what one of the things they found that made the most difference in terms of sustaining intellectual um, ability and um, is conversation. And she said, 
the people who were most socially active, actually, it showed that they had lesser rates of dementia. And she's like, if you think about it, conversation is using your brain, right? I have to listen to you. I have to internalize what you're saying. And I have to respond to that. And so that's using our brains. Um, so it does make a lot of sense um, if you if you look at the science as well. Yeah. And then comes the art of figuring out where somebody is. And if they've been in a situation where they don't have a lot of stimulation, then learning the check this out. What do you think? It's a llama. Right. And on the inside, no drama. <laughs> <laughs> and what I just added was a little bit of humor. And again, it's that ha ha ha. But when you do that, it it actively changes brain chemistry again. And so that upbeat thing. What do you make of um, the fact that, uh, and I, I see it again in my mom, that you know she's losing her memory more and more and forgetting words, but she hasn't really lost her sense of humor. Yeah. Why? Because that's a deeper, more um, primitive-based phenomena. We have our amygdala, and then we have the primary emotion drivers. And what tends to happen with dementia is sometimes the lid comes off too quick, and there's not the pullback, the impulse control. But the idea that we could still have humor and find humor in things, what will tend to happen is what people find humorous might start to change somewhat. And what we have to be a little careful of is that I don't say like, well, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense because that may be hurtful. Whereas, you know, like, mom, that's not what I meant. I mean, that's that's not the way you should use the word there. I mean, because then I'm correcting or I'm being um, sort of negative, but in a humorous way, but it doesn't feel so funny on the receiving end. Whereas things like looking at babies' pictures or watching kids do silly things or watching dogs do things or watching people do things or you know being able to look at a clever sort of play on something, people will suddenly have a moment of insight into wordplay, but sometimes they miss the wordplay and they pick up on our cue, but laughter is laughter. So, Tipa, I mean, it's such a long journey, dementia. I mean, you know, 10, 12 years in a lot of cases. And I find the worst part is kind of going from stage to stage, right? Because you're really living with this deterioration and you're, un, you know, you, it, it, it turns into something else, right? It's not constant. So, you know, at first it's like, in the, the first stages, it's like the person is not who they used to be and realizing they're having memory difficulties, but they're still there. And then you, 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 as you move through this disease, you're watching a piece go, you know, slowly and maybe come back, but then go and come back and it's a slippery slope. So give us like, how do we prepare? I mean, how do we know what's coming up? How do we prepare ourselves um, whether patient or caregiver, to, to really take on what's coming next. So what we want to think about is a roller coaster. Um, that, typed in, it's a roller coaster as soon as you, yeah, right before it's you. A roller coaster. It's a roller coaster with some merry-go-rounds in it. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes when we're at a certain place, it feels like we're on a merry-go-round. It's like, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. And then there's this sudden dip down and we go, oh, whoa, no. And then we find... Okay, and then we're back up it a little bit, but it isn't the same roller coaster and it's not the same merry-go-round. So as we move through this thing called dementia, 
each person is unique in each journey and each type of dementia. But what we're noticing, what you're going to notice is you get to a place where it feels like, yeah, okay, I'm finding a rhythm. It's a little repetitious because I mean, here we go. This is the new normal. And it's like, yeah, no, it isn't. And, and sort of, I think if we can wrap our heads around, there is no permanence. There are moments of brilliance and there are times of loss um, and being flexible and resilient um, in either position, whether you're the person living with or whether you're the person who's trying to support, recognizing, whoa, um, that that's a shift. Yeah. <laughs> and wow, that's different. And for me, one of the most important things to say in that moment is what's still here? What's still working? What's what's making it happen okay? Because yeah, loss is coming. So what what's happening now? What's there that I can work with? What's happening that I can use? What's celebrating? Um, what do we celebrate in the moment and what do we grieve? Um, and that's it's like constant. That's unfortunate, but it is. So um, someone has all just made the comment that um, saying my stepdad doesn't know my mom one minute and then is completely normal the next, right? So it's very hard for her mom to manage him as he thinks he's yeah. fine, right? That, that yeah. I'm just yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. So it feels really, it's like, wow, that is really a rough one when it's, um, they call it cop grass where or, or it's something similar. Cop, to what is it called? Cop grass. C-K-A-P or C-A-P-G-R-A-S. And it's the inability to recognize somebody that you know well and call them and think them an imposter. They're not who you think they are. And then you turn around and they're perfectly fine. They're, they are who I know. Um, so, and that's, that can be that very that symptom is very common with Lewy body. We see it with time disparities with people who have Alzheimer's where they time travel a little bit or a fair amount. Um, and different dementias are different, but in that moment, learning the art of saying, well, hey, and they go, who are you? And you know in that moment where you are. And then the next time they say, well, where have you been? I wasn't where I, you were looking for me, obviously. You know, and learning to let go of the consistency, and it's not for everybody. So this is this is really really fascinating to me too, because we don't know how to deal with it as a family too. When my mom actually looks at my dad and thinks that he's someone else, not her husband, right? And the automatic reaction is like, of course it's your husband, you know. But we, I know you always say, step into their reality, right, and become part of that reality. So what do we do if he's like, yeah. so if he says, that isn't my husband is like, oh, that's not who you're looking for. Tell me about the guy you're looking for. Because in that moment, that very much when she describes the guy she's looking for, she may look at him and go, well, where have you been? I mean, it can happen like that. And it's just like, this is not my home. I want to go home. It's the same idea for faces, though, it's unique. Uh, the human brain is is really designed to specifically and uniquely process human faces. And there's a specific area in the temporal lobe um, that's designed to do that. And it's in the left temporal lobe along with the language area. And that's sort of unfortunate <laughs> because that's also the area where we see the greatest destruction in most dementias. And so that coming and going represents the wiring fritzing out, um, which is really hard. But 
do you have the same clothes on you had on yesterday? Do you, is your hair combed exactly the same way? Are your glasses the way they were five years ago? I mean, all those things, I have file folders on you. And every time we meet, there's a file folder that gets added. And for those of us with intact cognition, I know they're in the same file. Even if you got your hair cut, I would know it was you, although I would be commenting on the change. And for people who live with dementia, suddenly I look at you and you're not matching my photo ID. I've got this photo ID and you don't match it. And why are you doing this? You're trying to trick me. And so it's her voice, but you're not her. And it's like, wow, what a scary place to be to not, I mean, and that's where I go is like, oh my God, how awful it would be to not know the person you've married and know it's that person in front of you. And it would be scary to have them in your bedroom. Mm, absolutely. I, it's, it is very hard. Uh, I mean, the brain is so complicated, isn't it? It's, it's, it is very hard to go into imagining what that's like, right? I, I mean, I truly can't imagine. No, until you're there, I don't think we can. I think some of us who've studied it a lot, you know, have huge empathy for people who are living it, but I can't be you because I'm not you. Yeah. And it's the best I can do is to be supportive. So we have a question coming in, um, and I think this is more from the person who's been diagnosed with um, a, a dementia. Um, how do you cope with the paranoia? I struggle with this daily. Yeah. Paranoia is rough because there's just enough truth that people are looking at you a little differently and you are missing things and it feels like people are saying things about you or around you and they may indeed be making a comment um, that there's a balancing act though, being immobilized by your fear and paranoia is essentially a fear based on a threat. And so often breathing is a place to start because if I'm not taking in O2, there is no way my brain doesn't feel threatened. And so that tensing, that automatic tensing behavior is a counterproductive. And so getting yourself to I wanna ask you something. And then getting yourself to ask questions rather than make assumptions. Now, it does require a level of trust. Uh, and that's the trick with paranoia. Are you looking at me funny? It feels, and this is our skill for those around, learning the art of saying, so you're wondering if I'm lying to you. Not to the best of my knowledge. Tell me more about what it feels like. What's going wrong? And I think... The hardest thing for me is to know someone is out there without support <laughs> and to know that without people knowing a response that helps, it often makes it worse because often people will say things like, you're being ridiculous. Why would somebody be following you? And it's like, I don't know. I just know that I think they're following me. Okay. So tell you what, um, I'm wondering if we should not go that direction? Is it when you follow, go that direction or go somewhere else? Right. And this person has commented that um, saying, I think people are following me in my car, uh, my neighborhood, um, my neighbors are watching me, right? So it's yeah. that. Yeah. And it's where people are gazing perhaps. And what we're noticing is the eye contact. 
and because eye contact now is a threat, whereas before eye contact wasn't a threat, it was a, a greet. So one of the things you can try is if you think somebody's watching you, turn and look at them and put your hand up and go, hey, and see what they do. Um, and start to give them something to look at, which is less threatening. And, and it says, I noticed you, I saw you, hey. And give a response back that's a greeting and just see what they do with it. Because if they're trying to track you or do something that feels more threatening, um, they're not going to respond to that well. They're going to turn or do something. And so that would give you a heads up. Huh. Well, I guess they were just, I guess they were just walking by. And if you pick your hand up and they don't do anything, maybe we're actually looking. I mean, that's the, you've, we've got to find some strategies that help me start to feel. And the word is in control. So what about... Okay, what about, and this is the perennial problem, like um, somebody stole my watch, you know, someone in the house, I know she took it. Yeah. We always say step into the reality, but we know that the watch wasn't stolen. So yeah, so, but the problem is I'm not going to convince you that's wrong. Actually, I mean, lie detector tests can't prove that. So I would say, so the watch is missing. Your watch is missing. And you're pretty sure somebody took it. I mean, you're sure somebody took it. I hear you. That's not my experience. I thought I thought that was a watch that got gone a while back because I thought you had a different one. But tell me about that. So tell me about it acknowledges you might have a different side to the story. I may need to listen to what you have to say because you want to be heard. Yeah. <laughs> and And you're missing something. And it's like, so you're missing that watch. That watch is gone, the one you want. Describe it for me a little bit more. Because what I might be able to do is figure out, oh, she's talking about the watch. Oh, my gosh. I think I remember that watch. Um, because sometimes it's an old story that comes back. And sometimes it's uh, I hid the watch because I was afraid somebody would take it. And that's that paranoia again. Uh, but my brain tricks me because I hide it. And then I don't remember, number one, that I hid it. Number two, where I put it. Um, so it's actually pretty well hidden. Um, and it could be in something that gets thrown out. So um, someone else is mentioning um, UTIs, right? Um, that, yeah. okay, the client experienced feeling lost this weekend and was afraid. And I've seen a downward shift these last few days. First thing we do is check for UTI, um, but I don't think that's the issue. So UTIs, um, how, when should we be, like how often do you see this behavioral decline or change rapid um, due to UTI? Well, due to UTI or any other infection or dehydration or not eating well or depression or anxiety. So the tricky part about dementia is when something's not right, the brain is the first place to go. Something's not right. Something's not right. And it sounds an alert. And the alert is I can't function. I can't function. And so we see a deterioration in function because of anything. And a UTI is certainly an obvious one for some people, uh, particularly as we're starting to notice um, both hygiene, but also fluid intake. So sometimes we, we try to treat the UTI and that's all we're focused on rather than looking at how much fluid is getting in and what kind of uh, drinking patterns we're seeing and what kind of toileting patterns we're seeing. 
Um, and we get all, all hooked into the UTI treatment, but what we're not looking at is the bigger picture of what got us there again, uh, particularly when it's a rep repeated pattern. Uh, it can also be mini strokes. It could be um, problems with diabetes. It could be a number of things. So what I'm indicating is be careful not falling in that UTI phenomena. It can be, but it also be an abscessed tooth. It could be a filling fell out and there's pain, but the person isn't really tuned into where it's coming from. Um, Do we know why infection um, impacts cognition? Yeah, and it has a sort of, this is where COVID's been really interesting. Um, infection control is managed by the primitive brain. And so when we have problems with inflammation or infection of any sort, the primitive brain gets all stirred up. But when it's doing that, it can't do higher order functions. And so if it's devoting itself to managing dehydration, managing things within the system, it doesn't have the ability to do higher order functions. And that's why we see somebody being foggy and less alert and less able and less participatory or really revved up, but not able to focus, not able to stay focused on anything. And it has to do with how humans' brains are wired in during times of pain, during times of infection, medication mis mistakes, um, blood sugar irregularities, blood pressure irregularities. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, another um, viewer is saying, my mom is starting to only like sweet tasting foods and crunchy textures. Do we know why that is? Yeah, we know about the sweet. It has to do with the primitive brain again. We're right back to the primitive brain and the primitive brain um, wants to have fuel. And what's the quickest fuel that we know about? Glucose. And so the brain says, the primitive brain goes, oh, glucose. That's what I need. I need glucose. And so it pushes for the glucose because you get a rush. You get, you get a chemical rush and you get energy. And so what happens, unfortunately, when you take in glucose is you also have a dip because glucose is fast burning. And as soon as you get it in, you burn it off. And then it's like, I need glucose. And now it becomes, now the roller coaster on the glucose roller coaster is running. So trying to figure out some sweet flavors. And it's, we also believe for many people living with dementia, um, they start to reduce their sense of taste of sweet. They actually do not taste sweet as well as we taste sweet. And so they have to super sweet it to taste the sweet. And the primitive brain is pushing that, pushing that agenda with, yes, yes, have another cookie. Yes, that's a great idea. Have three. Yes. Two more. <laughs> yes. yes. The crunchy is interesting because it has to do with uh, texture. And many people who are very much oral um, individuals, they love stimulation in their mouth, either gummy or crunchy will become the thing they drive for. So gummy sort of gooey stuff or really crunchy things that give you a lot of stimulation. And it's a stimulant, it's what it is, both chemically and also textural. I think you just answered why, like my mom used to be able to eat uh, spicy food, like love spicy food, and now she can't tolerate it anymore. And so that's exactly, you just explained it to me. I can completely understand it, you know? It's like, wait, what's wrong with her? She used to love Indian curries, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's overwhelming now yeah. because the, the sour bitter don't change, but the sweet and the salty, they seem to diminish a little bit. So it's like, ooh, what did you do to that lemonade? And it's like, 
I made it the way I always make it. It's like, it's horrible. Right. Ugh. So um, you have a fan, um, someone saying that I almost act um, through a conversation. I stay within their reality. It works. I always follow your techniques, Tifa. You are incredible. I tried your bathing technique and I'm amazed. Okay. So share it with the rest of our audience. What's the, what's the secret to bathing? Oh, well, the, the secret to bathing is think about how comfortable you'd be if I just came in and said, let's get your clothes off, Deborah. <laughs> just like, yeah, no. And also starting with some things that, um, so I tend to start with, ooh, you have very, you have really dry skin. Tell you what, let's, what happens if I point out some dry skin and we do something that's good for dry skin? A moist wash, warm washcloth, apply that pressure. Now let's put some lotion on. Ooh, how about your, how about your feet? Just try that. Okay, now pull your pants leg up. I don't want to get them wet. And what I'm really doing is establishing a relationship because if people will show me their feet, then they're more likely to show me their legs. If they show me their legs and their feet, then they're more likely to show back. And if I can put a warm towel, I warm the environment up. I I put, our, put ourselves in a situation where I make sure they have a cover on um, because humans don't necessarily like being naked in front of another human. And it's not an intimate relationship. It's not that kind of, we're both gonna get naked together. It's, you're gonna be naked and I'm gonna stay clothed. And it's like, there's an unequalness to that. And so I've gotta make it feel like this is a reasonable thing. And so creating the, the sense of being covered and using a beach towel and warming things up and using hand under hand in a handheld shower that we check it out and for sure not doing above the neck until I have for sure everything going okay. So showers over the head, ooh, you wanna make sure everybody's okay with that before we go to that place. Yeah, I can imagine that would be a little frightening, right? <laughs> lots of tricks, but yeah. lots, lots of pieces that make a that make things better or worse if you don't recognize them for what they are. So, um, Tifa, share some insights with us. Um, what have you learned during COVID? I mean, is there anything that that has occurred to you that didn't in the past? Um, yeah, that people can have social interactions online that are pretty powerful, but they can also be incredibly lonely online um, if we don't form connections. So people are spending a lot of time looking at this small screen sometimes, um, just like they used to spend time looking at the TV. I think the new danger is often the screen, but it can become a powerful tool of interaction. I'm, surprised how many webinars I do where there's nobody on the webinar that I can see but me and people are out there. And what's interesting is how many webinars frequently there's no chat. People just sit. They want to watch. They want to watch. And it's like, so here's the deal. I want you to tell me two of your favorite colors. Type it in because it's important for me to know what do you like and encouraging people to not be passive even on a webinar, which is cool because we see so many folks here actively engaging. It's one thing to listen, it's another thing to participate. And so I think what I've learned is initiation is hard when you're alone sometimes, but 
by helping someone else participate and getting connected, it improves both of us. Um, is, it helps both. Is um is video harder when you have dementia? Is it harder for? I mean, not setting it up. I'm like, let's say it's all set up. Is it is it harder to relate to people on video if you have dementia? It can be, uh, and on the other hand, it can it can work really well once we learn some of the ins and outs and the and the the ways that we can manage the system so we get what we're looking for. Watching yourself on a video can be really confusing. So having a system that allows one person to, whoever the person is that has dementia, doesn't see themselves. They see the other people because they can't figure out why they're on the screen. If they are far enough into dementia that it's confusing and I don't need them confused, I want them engaged. So. I would say, yes, some people it doesn't work. Many people it does, but we can't have too many faces at once. So sometimes big family gatherings or large events, that's a bad matchup with people. Whereas a couple people getting together, the tricky part is singing <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah. You know, because some people, music is the is the blessing and the gift. I mean, it truly is an amazing thing um and how we use rhythm is really pretty remarkable the downside of using the internet for singing and music you can't sing together very well um and that's a sad thing because many people further into the disease really do do a great interaction with music um and rhythmic kinds of things but it's so much easier when we're in person it's it's much more challenging right um, but it's possible it's just more more challenging someone else is saying asking it seems that some people are aware of their dementia while others like my mom don't think they have anything wrong can they truly not realize that they have dementia or are they just covering it up that's a great question yeah, and the answer is both. Um, yes, they absolutely can have no awareness and it's called anosognosia when they have it, anosognosia, the inability to be self-aware. And there's a chunk of brain in the prefrontal cortex. It's a little to the left. It's over on the left-hand side. And it allows us to be aware of ourselves and to compare ourselves with our performance and to say, oh, you did a good job or oh, you need some help here. You're not doing such a great job. It allows me to look at myself and self-assess. Um, unfortunately, there are about half of people who get dementia who have damage in that area. And it means I no longer have self-awareness. So I don't see why I can't drive. I don't see this is, I'm not having that much trouble. I don't know why you think that. And it's like, well, why is the bank balance? Well, that's because they've changed the form. And so what my brain will try to do is come up with reasons why, because I simply can't view myself anymore. I just can't. And often it's people who were never particularly good. They might've been called blamers or had trouble assuming responsibility before. Um, on the other hand, there are some people who who get that something's wrong, but the, the last thing I want is everybody knowing about it. And so those folks are a little different. Um, that's sort of like guarding my my inability. I can't tolerate other people knowing that. I'm fine. Leave me alone. That's more of a fear of being found out um, because... I value being smart. I value being good at, I value being independent. And when someone notices, 
then the risk is that I will be threatened. And so pushing people away from me is the safest way to not be found out. Right. So I want to actually ask you this question because I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And, it, you know, we I'm being patient. We're interviewing people with all types of dementia. So, um, you know, the more I find out about Lewy body, the more I think it's one of the most misdiagnosed um, dementias. Um, so we have Lewy body that typically presents itself with hallucinations. Um, we have, you know, vascular dementia, strokes, FTD we have a whole host of different dementias and a, a pathologist I once spoke to said that he believes that like, well, when they open up the brain, 75% are, are mixed dementias. Like you, mm -hmm. you can have, you know, more than one. A lot of times we're just told we have Alzheimer's disease because that's the most common one that's diagnosed. But my question to you is like, you're so invested in the care of people with dementia is there a way to care for people according to how, which dementia they have? I mean, is there a different playbook for Lewy body than there is for Alzheimer's versus vascular versus FTD? Great question. And there are different ways of caring for people depending on the kind of symptoms they're showing. And the symptoms are most frequently accurate for the types of dementia in those moments that are prevalent in the world that their brain is operating in. So if I have both Lewy body and I have vascular dementia, and I say to you, those people need to get off of the windowsill before somebody falls, then prob high probability, that's a Lewy body symptom. And so you're worried about the people on the windowsill. So is someone threatening them or they just don't have good balance? Well, I'm not sure. Well, what kind of outfits do they have on? Well, I don't know. They're oh my gosh, maybe they fell or something. I don't see them right now. Because what happens sometimes is my knowledge of Lewy body is that if I ask for a detailed observation of a visual hallucination, frequently when the person actually activates their active visual or cortex, the brain goes, I don't know, I can't see them now. Because it's like, hello, oh, wait, no, it's not there. It's like, well, if you see them again, let me know. Because I'm not, I can't make your brain not have symptoms of Lewy body, but what I can do is see if I jog it a little bit, if the Lewy is going to be real active or is it going to go away for a little bit? So, um, and I, and I guess I, I, I like what you say too. You have to kind of just treat the symptom that you're experiencing on the particular day. Right. Cause we don't, um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, Again, this this issue of denial keeps coming up too, um, and I'm I'm assuming people are asking this question a lot because they're caring for their loved ones who obviously have dementia, but they're they're the loved ones are like we don't have dementia. So I'm assuming what people are trying to ask is like, well, do you say of course you have Alzheimer's or do you just pretend like they I don't? I mean, I don't pretend that they don't, but I'll say, so when I say that the doc, so when the doctor said you have Alzheimer's, what did you think he was talking about? He never said that. Okay. What do you remember he did say? Well, he said I was fine. Huh? okay, wow, that's not what I remember, but that's what you heard. Boy, are we in different places. And what that tells me right now is 
okay, she doesn't, she's not going to go this route. So I've got to figure out how, if I'm going to continue to try to help, I've got to do it with an appreciation. She's not going there. And so I tried my best and I'll go, so we're in real different places. Wow. Because I thought I noticed some changes. You're not seeing anything different at all. And they'll say, no, I'm fine. You're the people who are having problems. You and that stupid doctor. Well, now I'm catching on a little bit of this. She has awareness, but not in a way that she can make use of it. And when she gets close to it, her primitive brain goes threat, threat, danger, anger, or fear. And I can't really help someone who's actively angry as easily as I can someone who isn't actively angry. I can't help someone who's in terror as easily as I can somebody who's not as fearful. So I say, well, I'm sorry, because it sounds like we really had a miscommunication about that. Tell you what. How about I'm going to drive today and next time we'll talk about you driving. And I know you think you should drive all the time, but for right now, yeah. I'm going to go with what I remember and it's going to piss you off. And I'm going to go ahead and possibly say that to somebody It's probably going to piss you off. I'm going to acknowledge your emotion is not going to be happy with me. I don't feel safe doing it without the doctor giving it an okay. And I remember something different in the conversation. So um, I have to ask you a question with more my reporter's hat on because um, oh, go for it. this is something that at Bring Patient we're, we're noticing. We're getting enormous insight from patients and caregivers through their experiences, right? And because we talk to both sides, we talk to the researchers and we also talk to the patients and caregivers and we're trying to bring everyone on the same platform um, because we believe like more knowledge and more insights um, will lead to um, just a better understanding of the disease and hopefully uh, to a better, better treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So my question to you is if you were talking to a researcher right now, what would you, what would your insight, where, where, what would you have to offer for insight um, in terms of the data points you're picking up? I mean, you obviously are unique in the sense, you know, a lot about the brain, about the physical, the way that the brain works, and you can interpret that into care strategies. But what is it that we should make research aware of that you are seeing people like you who spend a lot of times with patients and caregivers that maybe they're not seeing on the scientific side. Quit paying. I mean, I would love for you to pay attention to functional abilities and less to the MMSAE and the scores on cognitive tests that are, they're just not helpful for care and life. I need you to pay attention to how am I living life and how is my partner supporting and what is it that we're struggling with? Do we need environmental shifting? Do we need uh, chemicals that are going to assist us in ways that I can still do things that I really care about? Um, let's get more curious about what we can offer one another and less about you telling me or you telling us what research you want to do. Um, because I think the frustrating things are for people who are living with dementia and their family and, and professional care supports is how often that diagnoses are still being missed 
Um, people, what they care about is still not being really dealt with, that we still have such black and white, well, you need to go get your affairs in order. And it's like, well, I was just diagnosed and I went for early assessment. So, whoa, whoa, hang on, you know, pause. I don't think I'm there yet. I mean, this isn't like I'm three quarters through the disease and we're really looking at the end of my life. This is I caught it when it was very first indications of something's going different in my brain. Um, this is not me exactly. Things are really sort of funky. I don't usually do this. Then let's start talking about living life well, and let's look at gradations of function that make life better for everyone. Instead of you've got dementia, you don't. You have this dementia. And it's like, well, actually, I'm not sure I do have that one. And why do we keep using words that are not the right words? I mean, when it isn't for sure Alzheimer's, why keep using it? I find that frustrating. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting too, because I, I really do believe I am learning so much from other caregivers and people who have been diagnosed, right? I find it really empowering to talk to people because I'm learning so much, even more so than what a doctor could tell me. So I, I keep thinking this information has got to be better, like more people have to be aware of it, right? Yeah, and at some point, I'm hoping that we decide where physicians fit in this. And I don't think they're driving the ship. Ultimately. No, certainly I not. Think they are going to be consultants. I, I just violated rule number one of doing live videos, which is not to turn off your phone. <laughs> yeah, I caught myself too earlier. But I mean, I think we need to see them for what they are. They are experts at managing conditions that can be treated, can be cured, can be evaluated and investigated. But living with dementia is not really one of those things. And so looking to them to guide us through this, unless they've experienced it personally, and then we're getting them doing one person because most of them, unless they choose a career that's different, don't pursue living with dementia. They pursue getting a diagnosis, but not living through the disease right. as a course of action that they are gonna be helpful with because that's not what they do. They they look at it like this and it's like, we need to look at it like this. We need the legal system involved. We need, we need the financial systems involved. We need this so much more supportive than we currently have it until we get closer to whether it's a cure or at first just risk reduction and prevention and management. Um, right. Okay, um, I'm going to just throw this last question at you, which is, um, is it true that if my parents were to move, mom has dementia, that it can put her in the next stage of dementia? Everyone is fearful of this changing environment, right? Is, is that yeah, really bad? Staying, staying in a place that isn't working can also put her in another state of, you know, worsen her condition. So there's no magic answer. It could, but it could also be problematic for her to stay in an unsafe or unsupported situation. Because what we're seeing in, in the pandemic certainly is people are overwhelmed sometimes and there's neglect and there's missing cues. So moving spaces is one element, but getting the right support is the other reality that makes a big difference. So no magic. 
there's not a magic wrong and there's not a magic right. It, each individual, we need to do an assessment of the situation. Have we prepared the new environment as and the support as best we can to reduce and mitigate those risks? And that's that's sometimes the best we can do. Is, um, and I can't, the questions just keep coming in. I don't want to cut, I know we've been going for an hour, but I just, I want to try to get to everyone's questions because I know you're just a hot commodity in this space, Deepa, so. Um, <laughs> Another who know what they're doing or trying. <laughs> um, another comment. My parents, both um, with dementia, were moved to AL in August. Mom now sleeps until the late afternoon, missing breakfast and lunch, so losing weight. Is this normal in maybe the later stages? I'm seeing we're seeing that a lot with my mom too. She's going to bed a lot more often. Yeah. Well, she's going to bed because nothing's going on. I mean, she can't initiate, and unless somebody or something starts, <gasps> Deborah. I know you're resting, but boy, I could sure use your help for five minutes and then I'll help you lay down. She won't be back to bed for two hours because there's a reason to be alive. These locations are so overwhelmed. I'm seeing again and again, they are they don't have the personnel and the personnel don't have the training and they're as depressed as everybody else is and they lack that, that drive to get somebody up and going because it's easier to let somebody lay there and do nothing rather than potentially get up and need something. And it's like the whole point of us being in these settings was for engagement and, and support. And all too often, if somebody isn't demanding support, I want a cookie, then people are leaving sleeping people lie. And that is a really dangerous precedent mm -hmm. to set up. Um, because it means I'm sleeping my life away. Mm, absolutely. It's it, 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 absolutely. drowsing, not even sleeping. It's just drowsing my life yeah. away. Tipa, as always, um, as I say, if you're dealing with dementia, everyone needs a Tipa Snow in their lives, you know, and I'm super grateful that you appear on Being Patient um, every so often. I know it's enormously helpful um, to our community. So thank you for your time. And um, rest assured, you are making everybody's life just a little bit better. <laughs> well, we all together, if we complete that infinity loop, that's how we do this, is we come together, we support one another, and that's how we get through this. Thank you, Tipa. So if you've missed any of this interview, uh, you want to hear more, we always upload it to our site on beingpatient.com. Don't forget to sign up. For our newsletter, you can do so on www.beingpatient.com. The reason why you should sign up for our newsletters is because we give you the, the latest news on Alzheimer's and dementia research. And we also let you know about upcoming talks that we're holding, talks like TIPA, uh, so that you can sign up or put them into your calendar. So thanks very much, everyone, for watching. Um, wishing you all well during COVID. Um, hopefully, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. See you next time.